0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. This episode is with Steve Scott, who is the director of the Kendall Mountain Festival. Steve is so much more than that, um, and I'll leave most of it to the conversation that we had. But I will just say that uh, Steve and I go way back, actually. Um, he's been featuring our films in the festival for almost 10 years now, and I'm really grateful to him for being a proper standard bearer of everything we've done with Coldhouse and the films we've made over the years. So it was a real joy to be asked by Columbia to interview Steve at their Carnaby Street store a little while ago, They hosted an evening with us where um, Steve and I showed up. Uh, I had a quick chat about the podcast and what it is we do. And then Steve talked a little bit about Kendall Mountain Festival and showed the audience in store. um, I think it was seven films, um, a couple from the festival this year as a bit of a pre-screen, but also his favourite films from over the years, a couple of which I hadn't actually seen, which was Ace. He also, probably a little naughtily, gave us a tease of the trailer for this year, Uh, For four years, I actually edited the trailer for the festival. So it was ace to see this year's uh, trailer by the very talented guys at Cut Media who are responsible for the Danny McCaskill films that most of you will have seen, things like The Ridge. Uh, They've put it together this year and it's amazing. So do go and check it out. And before we start, I'd also really advocate getting to Kendall Mountain Festival. Um, I understand it's a trek for most people, especially if you don't live in the UK, or even if you do, it's a long way away. But People travel from all around the world to go to that festival. It's without question one of the most critically acclaimed mountain festivals in the world, if not the biggest mountain festival in the world. I actually think in terms of footfall, it is the biggest. And I asked Steve to explain a bit about what it is and what it's like to go there. But I have my own personal experiences of it. It was um, sat in the audience at Kendall Mountain Festival. It was one of the first times that I thought this is really what I want to do for a living. In fact, I could take you to the exact seat that I was sat in in their theatre watching one of the sender films from the states um years ago so it's been a huge inspiration for me over the years and i've been back at least every two and three years and when i can't it's often because i'm on expedition or away overseas like i am now filming an expedition with leo holding in guyana so as i say if you can make it to the festival then do but if you can't next year is a big anniversary for them and they've got a huge number of tour dates all around the uk where they bring some of the best films and the best speakers live to you in your city so do check them out online. And thanks again to Columbia and the Carnaby Street Store for inviting me down there to sit down with Steve Scott. So, um, thanks for sitting down with me. Here we are. We've known we each are. other quite a long time now. Quite a long time now.
2: Yeah, when was it we first met? I, We've worked together, haven't we, obviously.
1: I sat down at Candle Mountain Festival in the crowd. I was working it out the other day in 2006 for the first time and Gosh. it was that day that I decided to become an adventure filmmaker wow now I'm interviewing you 13 years <laughs> later
2: who'd have predicted that eh?
1: about your life and the festival
2: well yeah the festival's interesting I don't know if my <laughs> life is interesting <laughs> I but guess, anyway
1: guess we'll find out yeah exactly so can you just I guess kick off as is often the case by telling me how it all started
2: um my my outdoors your childhood childhood I yeah i guess a very unorthodox uh, entry into outdoor despite living in the northern lakes so i'm from keswick and uh, a family of five two brothers um my dad was um a builder he had a building company in town and um his passion was rugby um, he was quite, I guess, what you'd call a semi-professional rugby player in in those days. He was really good, but um, played for the North of England and played in Hoyt and the Borders and did a lot. Did a lot of, um, yeah, did a lot of touring with his rugby as well overseas. And I think his passion was for me to to be the rugby player. Being the eldest boy, he really pushed me down that that route. I was always into sport and, uh, yeah it 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 lasted a short while but then i suddenly discovered outdoor adventure
1: and where did that come from that love of the outdoors
2: well i was i always loved being you know luckily being in the northern lake district is um is the best playground but i guess you're only an influence um from the people around you from your family or your your friends and uh, amazingly it was a my maths teacher who who was also he's in the mountain rescue and uh was a keen kayaker and a skier and uh he got a group of us together and he took us skiing up to glenshee we stayed in the youth hostel in glenshee and uh i absolutely fell in love with it just it was wild typical scottish skiing couldn't see in front of your skis um wild weather but you know we had pretty shit gear um but it was it was if you like that, that lit the spark for me and uh you know, I just couldn't get enough of sliding down mountains. As, as simplistic as it sounds, I just just have found my calling really, and became obsessed as a kid. And how old were you? So I was twelve. So like, I guess in those days it'd be called year one, first year. And uh, we quickly progressed to um, to setting up a ski club in Keswick with with the with the teacher, and uh, we actually built a dry ski slope at school. So we did fundraisers around the town. We set up a race team and did all the, the dry slope, um, races, all the national championships. And when we could, obviously in the winter, we'd ski up in Scotland and race up there. So from being complete novices, I think the school had, I think there were three of us on the England schools, uh, ski team after a couple of years, you know, we sort of had a very, you know, steep learning curve, but we seemed to do quite well. So the ski slope we built was really short and steep, no lifts or anything, but we had floodlights. So we created the Keswick ski club with that and, uh, and that was the start, really.
1: And how common was that in those days, you know, skiing up in Scotland and funding dry ski slopes?
2: Um, Oh, again, yeah, I guess it wasn't too common, and, you know, my dad and my mum obviously were super supportive. Um, They couldn't quite understand what this was all about, but for Christmas they managed to buy a second-hand pair of skis for me and some old boots, and I I remember on Christmas Day, and it was those days we used to get quite regular snowfalls in the Lake District, and uh, I hiked up Latrig on Christmas Day with my new skis, and I was a really bad skier in those days. Managed to ski down Latrig, which is just above Keswick, 1,000 foot fell, and uh, I just thought, right, you know, it became an obsession. My, my bedroom was covered with ski racing posters, had ski sticks hanging on the wall, and it was, I had a, literally had a workbench work where I waxed my skis in my bedroom. It was, it was total obsession. I used to write to all the uh, World Cup races saying, How do I become a professional? Um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty impressive and single minded, which I guess has been a bit of a trait all my life, really.
1: <laughs> and when it came to leaving school, what were your ambitions and what was the plan?
2: Um, well, yeah, my careers teacher. I remember in the sixth form I was doing my A levels and uh, and the usual questions in those days. It was pretty pretty traditional, you know. Is like, are you going to go into law? Are you going to study business? So I wasn't very good at the sciences. So medicine was out of the question. Um, I was good at languages, and so I had a place to to study at Trent Poly, uh, which is Nottingham University these days, and it was to study European business with French. I got my place and uh, realised that I'd made a huge mistake and that actually the Alps were a much better um, calling for me and uh, it didn't take much persuasion for me to just up sticks and get a job for a ski school in the Alps and, uh, and start my career out there and do, do a bit of ski racing when I could.
1: And what was that like? What did you get up to?
2: Oh, it was it was a mixture of um, sort of going through my British ski teaching exams, all the Basie exams in the day, and uh, I progressed. And, and, you know, there was still a part of me that wanted to be, you know, a World Cup ski racer, but I, w- I was always, I guess, yeah, from, from going in the junior circuit and doing quite well and all the development teams, I guess, but coming into a senior level, there wasn't much funding then, um, as, as probably there isn't now, but uh, it was pretty badly funded, so... I quickly realized I was I was not going to make that. So I, I just put all my energies into teaching and getting all my qualifications and my French qualifications at Civalence. I think I was the one of the first few Brits to get the, the full Quivalence. And then I did some of my French exams, worked for the French ski school and uh, in Alpe d'Huez And uh, yeah, that, that really set me on a, a new course. So,
1: yeah. And what was your lifestyle like?
2: I was always yeah it wasn't I think ski teaching was just a means to an end it was a means to uh, I mean I enjoyed it I always enjoyed it but I was more I was more interested in the biomechanics the analysis of, of movement um, pushing myself teaching you know high level skiers and young racers as I did for the the club des sports sometimes in in Autoez and um, I did a lot of um training with the the local race coach as well and uh you know, it was mixing everything, really. And, and, and obviously, my, my main motivator was adventure sports. So, you know, living in the Alps, moving from the sort of Chamonix Valleys, um, Les Césilles, Crevolon, um, down to the Southern Alps was a real a transition period. And I, I really got into flying paragliders and, and ice climbing and, and snowboarding and all the rest of it. So it was the sort of, for me, the diversity of it. You know, I was always attracted to the more an orthodox approach and the sports that were emergent so hence flying i got into that when the sport started snowboarding i was probably a raced for out on the outdoors uh, snowboarding race team but that was carving so it was you know it wasn't really the freestyle circuit I hadn't developed that quickly then and obviously i'd come from an alpine racing background um so yeah so i did a few races for for outdoors and Dual slaloms and yeah, that that just sort of took me in a adventurous, you know, an adventurous
1: pathway really. So, can you tell me about the first time you went paragliding?
2: So yeah, the uh, there's a there's actually a really well known pilot called Patrick Bero, and he was from a, a resort uh, called Crevolon, which is near another place called Les Césies. Um not too far from Chamonix really. And uh, he uh, he he basically bought these early early paragliders. Um, which were manufactured by a company called V.S., Follery Subera, um, a parachute manufacturer who who started to manipulate these parachutes into sort of more more of a gliding wing. And uh, I just looked at him going out flying and I thought, I've got to try that. And uh, I asked him, I said, will you teach me to fly? And he could see that was a potential customer because he was selling these things as well. And the first flight I had was um, right down into the Beaufort Valley um from the top of les Sezies. so he built me a little ramp put my skis on and i said right how do these things work he went pull the left thing to go left pull the right one to go right i said well what about landing where am i landing he said just somewhere in the field in the middle of the valley he said my mate will be flashing the headlights you'll you'll just aim for those and i went so how do you slow it down he said don't worry you've got skis on speed isn't an issue i mean these things were pretty robust in those days as well you couldn't really into too much trouble and it was winter as well and that was it I, I managed to take off and uh, got in the air and flew well I guess it was three to four thousand feet into the valley and landed and was hooked and that was it I bought one.
1: <laughs> and what did that feel like you know the, you've spent a long time in the mountains you've been dreaming about the mountains since right. you were a kid can you remember that moment when you took off and just looked down?
2: Yeah I mean it was just a feeling of freedom you know I think there was always that that search for you know it was an exploration for me looking at a new, a new medium you know the air mass is, is fascinating isn't it? it's a bit like the water although we can't see it obviously and I just thought right something's here to be discovered and it was a new challenge for me um in fairness skiing become a bit of a job so I really wanted to explore my skills in other areas like climbing and and flying became that new thing and um and I know you know and funnily I, in the back of my mind I was thinking despite living in the Alps you know I was coming back to the UK to the lakes in the summers in those days in the early days and um I thought, what can I do on the fells in the Lake District with one of these? You know, I was always thinking, can I fly off Skidder? Can I go up into the into the bigger fells and see if I can get some flights off it? But they were pretty basic engines in those days, you
1: know. And what can you tell me about when you came back to the UK? Because, I mean, this wasn't a thing, was it at all?
2: No, no, I was. I think there was... A, it's funny, my, my good friend Stuart Holmes, um, and Patrick uh, Holmes, his brother... Um, we all we all sort of started flying around the same time. Stuart was climbing in in Chamonix. He, was, he did a couple of seasons out there. He brought one back to Keswick, and uh, there was Jocky Sanderson who, who was set, setting up a school there. Who's still one of the world's top pilots and experts in safety on on paragliding. And uh, we all sort of convened and at different points, and we started to throw ourselves off the fells. And I guess we just learnt through trial and error, which isn't always the best thing, really. But but again. And in the same time, we started to do uh, fast track. A few years, we started to compete and do some competitions, and things were evolving rapidly in the sport. And technology was was changing, and we were helping, you know, I guess, develop the wings. And
1: yeah. And what was the? What was the? I mean, I know you've just said this a little bit, but what was the scene like? What was the lifestyle like of a, a new paraglider in the early days? Um,
2: a lot of climbers were were, 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 were into it. Um, it's that sort of free spirit if you like i think there were quite a few people coming from climbing and mountaineer and getting into it. i guess it's a fast access off the hill at the end of the day um cross country was was sort of getting more and more into into the vocabulary although the gliders weren't in in the early days they weren't that performance so you glide angles and they Sink rates weren't amazing, so quickly the what we call the aspect ratio, the wings um, became more and more refined. So glide angles improved, and the speed of transition from one thermal to another improved. And therefore, you know, cross country f- flying became the norm. But I was I was never really, I, you know, I wasn't as good as uh, Patrick and Stuart at the cross country. I was more into, I guess, what would be classed as an acro pilot these days. I was more into trying to scale myself with the uh, aerobatics, and I did try and you know do quite a few aerobatic moves with them in, in the early days and that just the whole feeling of the glider becoming part of me was really where I was at I guess much like skiing and snowboarding it was very much about the kinesthetics of the machine I was interacting with and and that's what I really enjoyed doing probably just trying to scare myself really but you know
1: and how different was it back then to what it's like now in terms of what people are doing and distances oh god it's
2: usually different I mean. I remember when I did my first flight to Kendall from Keswick, you know, and it was like just massive for me, hitchhike back with someone and they said, where have you come from? And I went, I've flown from Keswick. And they were like looking at my backpack and thinking, you know, this guy's lying, you know, and, uh, but now people are regularly doing um, triangles and, you know, out and returns and really um, adventurous routes around the Lake District. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic to see what they're doing, Vol Bivouac, you know, where you're sleeping on. On the hill, and then getting up in the morning and flying cross country. So that, you know the distance record's just been broken. I think it's something like six hundred five, six hundred kilometer flights now. Amazing on a you know on a piece of fabric and, and string that you're putting in a backpack. It's it's impressive. So yeah, it's it's incredible sport.
1: And as the scene developed and grew in the UK in the Lake District, what was the competition scene like, and how were you involved in that?
2: I did the British Nationals. Um, uh, flew in Europe a bit with them and I then got a job with um line equipment and persuaded them to become the UK importer so that was my ruse always to to persuade someone to to fund this adventurous lifestyle and uh we did quite well in the day again I guess it was a bit like windsurfing when that was emerging there were a lot of people wanting to learn to fly and uh, we imported probably the the top brand in the world then and uh we demoed the wings, did the competition, gave feedback to the manufacturers and, and yeah, it grew, it grew rapidly.
1: Yeah. And was it safe?
2: Um, hmm. A few hairy moments. Um, again, my friends had accidents. We've lo- we lost, um, I guess, one of our families at a collective group, you know, um, really tough time that was. Uh, Stuart and Patrick's brother was killed in, in the U.S., um, you know, that was tough times, really.
1: Yeah. And how how did you, I mean, do you still fly now?
2: Um, I haven't been for ages. And in fact, it's funny you should ask, because I was just uh, with with my friend Jockey, who presents the free flight night at Kendall. And, uh, I said, you know, my daughter's been hassling me to go tandem flying. And uh, she's 12. And I said, let's, let's go and I'll, I'll fly solo. And, uh, he's going to take her on the tandem because I haven't been for a few years now. So, um, it, Kendall's just become all-consuming for me, so uh, uh, I've got uh, five kids with Jackie, my partner, so we've got um, you know two families combined and uh, the, some of the older kids have got a uni now, so it's freeing up a bit of time and we've put so much into growing Kendall over the years that uh, that's been an adventure in itself. So yeah, I'm starting to get a bit of free time back, so definitely want to take to the sky again.
1: So before we move on to that change in lifestyle and Kendall and mm. that side of things. Why did you end up living in Norway? Can you talk to me about?
2: <laughs> uh, so I was on the British demo ski team in the days. Uh, I was in Japan and uh, as it often happens, I met a Norwegian girl and uh, fell in love and she lured me back in, into into Norway. At the time I had, a, I had an adventure sports school in the French Alps, uh, in Alpe d'Huez. Um, with another paragliding pilot and an incredible snowboarder called François Mare. And our other business partner was Bernard Fabre, who's a mountain guide. So we we basically had an adventure sports school there, which predominantly was flying, climbing, uh, skiing, snowboarding. Um, sadly, Bernard was killed in an avalanche on the back of the seren with some clients, um, which again, you know, hit us all. And uh, it was in 95 when I was in Japan skiing. And then I met... I met uh, my girlfriend then and uh, I think I just needed complete change of scene my head wasn't in the right place and yeah it was it was yeah it was just the new new chapter I was looking for really so moved to Oslo and um, packed everything in a little Fiatuno <laughs> the roof was full of skis glider you name it it was all the, the car was packed and uh, yeah just left my life in the Alps I just felt I needed that, that new chapter then which it was, you know, new language, new culture.
1: What were you doing out there?
2: So, rapidly trying to learn Norwegian, which I didn't do too badly because I, I don't know, I'm quite lucky. I'm one of those people that seems to pick up languages all right. Um, but a lot of the place names in Cumbria are from the Norse, so it's amazing the connections with the the Norse language, like Fjell and Beck. You know, they're they're all they're all from the the Viking. You know, invasion. I guess, but so I found the sort of dialect in the intonation and, and the pronunciation of the the words quite quite easy. Um, but I was I was trying to get work, and I ended up get, amazingly getting a job. Don't know how I did it. Persuasion, Tom. I don't know, but I ended up getting a job for the Oslo um, Ski Club, uh, coaching junior races, which they they were a bit unsure of at first. And uh, my girlfriend was saying, "No, no, the, the guy's a good skier." You can also set a slalom course. You just give them a go, and I remember being like watched by these. You know, Norwegians are hardcore. Just you know, they're they're born on skis. So this British guy going out there, and they said, right, set a slalom course. And this was on one of the backers, they call it, one of the slopes um, that's floodlit in the evening. And I literally had to drill a slalom course and take this 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 group of young Norwegian kids in Norwegian and give them feedback on some of the some of the the drills I was setting them. So. um, Bit of a baptism of fire, but I managed to convince them. And then in the, the, the weekends, I was I had the sort of this rogue group of telemark ski racers come with me, and I was sort of helping them on, on movement and improvement of some of their weaknesses. So they quite they liked my unorthodox way of teaching. So, and then I got a job in the publishing business as well, which paid a bit of money. Because skiing, I didn't really earn a lot of money there, and it's very expensive to
1: live in Norway. This is the thing that I think is like, it's fascinating about the podcast is I'm now finding out you've worked in publishing as well.
2: Yeah. I don't know how this happened, but I was like really broke. I spent all my money, um, surviving and skiing, uh, always super expensive. I mean, you, as you know, I know you've been, um, love the culture there, love the outdoor lifestyle. I and mean, it was, you know, it was my natural place to, to be in a way outside, you know, the Lake District or, or Britain. Um, and, uh, Yeah, I I saw this job for a big American publishing company called...
0: Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
2: McGraw Hill, and it was for a sales and marketing manager for their academic book range for Norway and Iceland. And I picked that because I thought, never been to Iceland. Right, I'm going to convince them that I could do a good job for them just so I could go to Iceland and explore Iceland. Amazingly, I got the job. And uh, I managed to nearly double their market in a year <laughs> just from being nice to some professors and c- convince them that they needed to write the textbooks um, for, for you know, some of their some of their, you know, business business books and what have you. Because um, a lot of the business studies are done in English out there. And uh, so it did quite well with that. And, uh, yeah, it paid the bills and enabled me to go to Iceland. So I used to go and meet professors in universities north of Norway and Tromsø and places like that. Managed to, to pack my work in, in in a short time and then go out uh, ski touring and, and exploring on my own, which is what I did, you know. So, again, that was... Um, You know, a really great way of looking at uh, Scandinavia on the on someone else's business card.
1: And how long did it take you to learn Norwegian?
2: Um, uh, Well, a few months. But but um, yeah, I don't know. It was it was just it was just immersion. You know, it was total immersion. My girlfriend's parents didn't speak a word of English to me when I moved there, so it was very much, you know. I just had to learn really and, and and listen, you know, I think it was just I was really stubborn and just asked lots of questions but yeah, a few months but to do it properly it was probably a year, year, a year when I was having good conversations, yeah
1: Yeah, I suppose the reason for leaving Norway was the inevitable you know you're not married to a Norwegian lady <laughs> No,
2: no, um, there was a bit of an age difference and sadly our paths were sort of diverging and um, I'd done such a good job for the Publishing company. They were desperate to keep me on. I remember they off, they, they offered me a job in New York. Like we'd really need to keep you on. I'm like, no way. You know, so what am I going to do in New York? Seriously, uh, you know, where where are the mountains? So um, yeah, I thought, you know what, I've really missed speaking my own language. Obviously, lived in France and was immersed in French culture. Spoke French for many years. Lived there nearly ten years, and um, I thought, you know, c- close the loop and come back home to Britain um, to the Lake District and managed to meet someone and got a job in, in a team building company in uh, Kendall, which is the Kendall connection. And he was a director. He came out cross country skiing with another friend and met him and we just kept in touch. And as it happened, he had a job for this events company for a facilitator, event director, and somebody to help in, well, um, you know, multitasking really, lots of different jobs. And that company was really growing rapidly. So it was, it was a timing thing, really.
1: Yeah. You've done a lot.
2: Yeah. Again.
1: Yeah, i well I'm not
2: young. <laughs> Fifty four now, you know, so you know, it's uh it's quite a few years packing stuff in.
1: You've got a better hairline than me. <laughs> um and yeah, so sorry to backtrack there, it's just you know, I sort of saw you look away a couple of times as you were talking about it, but it sounds like, you know, obviously losing a business partner and Losing a paragliding friend had quite a profound effect on you.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think, well, it had more of an effect on the families. Uh, Bernard Fab was married to an English woman, Gillian, and uh, they had two small kids. So that, that really hit us hard. Um, you know, he, he was a lovely man. He, he did a lot of work with us. Um, and then uh, Philip, Stuart and Patrick's brother. You know, it's just a really dark period. You know, the sport was still emerging. And he was, you know, a very skilled outdoorsman. Um, yeah, um, just really upsetting time seeing seeing the family distraught, his you know his mother um, and father obviously. Uh, but you know, we all know loss, don't we? From from the well, from life really. So.
1: And I suppose being a director of Kendall, you know, you're you're meeting people. How long have you been a director?
2: So I think it. Ooh, I think it's eight years. I might be wrong about eight years I mean I started in 2004 the found one of the founders John Porter approached me um I had a, I'd started my own design school then and uh I'm laughing now because you're going to ask me how how I became a designer <laughs> that's another story well it was a Norwegian connection there but anyway so yeah I was running my design business and uh I'd got a quite a good name and um and he said oh we need some help on the festival with some of the marketing materials and and I also hear that you've got a background in some of the action sports, which we haven't got at Kendall. Do you have any connections? Which I did. So I, I sort of had a twofold job where I started helping with some of the design materials um, and uh, started to program some snow sports, mountain bike content. I was into biking as well and free flight, obviously, um, which progressed over the years nicely. Um but yeah, many hours were spent with John Porter doing the festival programme through the night about a week before the festival, eating pizza and drinking beer and just like total stress ball, you know, getting the programme to press. Um, it still hasn't changed a lot, even though we've got like 12, pe- 12 people in the office now. Um, yeah, yeah I, look, I, I look back and, you know, look back on fondness. It was, they were tough days. I could see the, the stresses he was going through at the time with the festival and... Uh, definitely lived through those with
1: with the team as well, you know. And what was the allure back then? What dragged you in? What was it about Kendall that...
2: I think it was my tribe, or tribes, plural. Um, I tended to um, gravitate towards, you know, outdoor adventurers from all sorts of disciplines Um, and really, didn't really matter where where they came from. I just had sort of a a shared uh, sense of adventure, the spirit of adventure. and I see that with a lot of the women and men who come to Kendall now. It's uh, no matter what the age, it, there's still that, um, there's a humbleness about a lot of the people. Uh, I guess it's quite different to a lot of the other, some sort of better funded sports. Um, um, but I think outdoor is a great leveler of people. And yeah, I just, just love the communities that it pulls together and, and seeing the creativity. You know, you you, you are one of the, Advocates of that, you know, from, from the work we've done together. And uh, just I just love the fusion of being, being creative and being adventurous. And I think that, for me, is, is what Kendall's about.
1: And so, you know, obviously, I mean, a lot of the people who are listening to this will be familiar with Kendall. But, you know, where we are today, we're sat in Columbia on Carnaby Street in London. We're about to speak to 50 people yeah. who live in London. And yeah. for those who haven't ventured into the far northern wastelands of England. <laughs> what is Kendall Mountain Festival?
2: Well, as I mentioned, it is a tribal gathering in a way, but w- actually the theme this year is really interesting. Um, uh, we're, we're talking about inclusivity this year and we're trying to open the doors a bit more. I mean, as we have for the last you know, five, 10 years, really, we've really tried to make, make the content more inclusive and more appealing to diverse communities. It's not always easy but uh yeah i think and, and we're seeing that with some of the content i'm presenting tonight some of the films to hopefully reflect the uh not only the creativity but the the um, unexpected if you like with with some of the content that i've got so there's fusion of music and and climbing for example and there's a uh, disability sport you know that blows your mind so there's there's something for everyone there's, there's a, an old group of women um Uh, swimming in the sea in in the Faroe islands just a lovely group of women and you know that that for me is is really important um what we do with kendall it's very much about community it's about taking it out there it's about giving back because at the end of the day we're really fortunate aren't we you know to be able to go off and ski up and around and down mountains and climb up mountains and travel the world and and um it's not that important, really. You know, when, when you see what else is going on in the world, so I just think it's. Um, you hear the word wellness; it is about well, mental well-being and wellness now, and I think that's that's the healing factor of outdoor. And I want to make that achievable and approachable to a lot of different people, which is what we're doing with all our community stuff at Kendall.
1: So go on, then I'll bite. Let's let's deviate. What what is it about the outdoors that you think is essential? Why do we need it?
2: Well, I mean, I don't want to sound try. It, it is mental health, isn't it? It's, it? it's healed a lot of us in difficult times, uh, as it does whether you're walking the dog or going for a run in the fells or, you know, climbing or flying paraglides, mountain bike riding, whatever, it's uh, swimming, you know, you could just, the list goes on. But it is, it's about finding balance um, and it doesn't have to be extreme. I think we had, we had a reputation of being core and extreme at kendall for many years and it still has i think for for a lot of people and that 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 element is still really important that we nurture those people and give them a platform to network and and um, showcase their work but you know we've also got to get the school kids in who've never been up the fells you know i grew up in keswick and i was always amazed at the number of kids i was at school with who'd never been up the fells that are surrounding their town and it's like unless you rise above that you know that that landscape that you you're stuck in, you can't change your perspective. I know it's a great metaphor, but you you really do need to rise above to see the world through different eyes. And hopefully, we all will sow some seeds with some of the younger people. And we've got Syrian refugees coming to the festival this year, um, so we've got we've we've invited a whole load of them to the festival. We've got um, community groups where we we make our family adventure sessions free. Um, we've got school session at Kendall, thousand school kids nearly. In the biggest venue in Kendall, we make that free. And it's really important. And I've got to say, my wife, Jackie, she's the real driver of that, really. she's She's been really forceful in pushing that through um, at Kendall, And, uh, you know, all respect to her for doing that because it's um, it's changed the landscape, really.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, everything you're saying resonates with me really deeply. You know, I, I grew up in Skegness. I was born in Grimsby. I didn't not, know that. Yeah, not Keswick. And at sixteen, I moved to the Lake District. Yeah. And you know, yeah, I'd been on family holidays, but I suddenly was immersed in this place. Yeah. And following on from that, a few years later, I found myself in the audience at Kendall Mount Festival. Yeah. Thirteen years later, I'm sat here talking to you. You know, it's had a profound effect on me, and I think that the more people can go and experience, I mean, outdoor film is such a powerful vehicle for introducing people to the outdoors and the wilderness. Um but the festival itself is special you know it's not just about film mm. right i mean can you talk me through what someone could expect if they show up on the thursday and leave on the sunday
2: um uh, some people say it's life changing it can be um well from from lots of different perspectives you can meet people there people have met partners there um so if you're single there's it's a great meeting place um you can become inspired by some of the content and some of the stories what i love most is it's the most I hate to use the word normal people doing really unusual incredible things Um, and you know you've got such a huge concentration of those people at the event from lots of different walks of life Um, so you know at the core of the event you've got an incredible film programme and film is still the beating heart of the festival but you know we've got the biggest speaker programme of any event of its kind in the world from you know around 150 speakers every year come to kendall you imagine what the accommodation bill's like for us you know it's massive but it's worth us bringing these communities together because it's it sort of nurtures and grows new waves of content expeditions are planned at kendall new creative projects are planned um and in a way what i love doing is presenting some of these stories you know i'm i usually do what you do and that's uh, sort of interview people but um I just I just love seeing these things um connect and fire up and yeah it's it's good to sometimes stand back and see it all happen it's a um, bit of a monster really
1: <laughs> and outside of the screenings and the film programs and the speakers in terms of the what sh- we shouldn't call it nightlife the 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 bar scene and things like that <laughs> can you describe that I think you?
2: yeah someone said there's more pints of beer and alcohol consumed at the festival than certainly any other event in the north of England I think uh, we get thousands of people coming out it 's difficult to pinpoint, but we reckon anything between sixteen and twenty thousand people every year come to the event it 's been growing rapidly um The challenge we 've got now is is looking at facilities and, and venues um so we 've got a bit of an ambitious plan for next year but um yeah, the party scene's a big thing as well sort of people relax it's it 's between seasons as well, so it 's a good time of year
1: and can you tell me a bit about i guess the highlights over the year whether that's specific films or
2: Well, this year i mean well we've just heard what um we're hoping nims can make it to the festival i'm not sure if he can get back from the himalaya in time but he said he was pretty keen i think it's just a we don't know if he's got got time to actually get back in time for the event which is in a few weeks but um it's it's not just the the high achievers like that it's uh it's things like women adventure, women adventure sessions. We've got the, obviously, the the regular snow nights, the alpine climbing session, the bike night. These are all um, regular slots on the Kendall calendar, which have become, you know, big social events of the year. Uh, snow night, obviously, I co-present with Jenny Jones, our Olympic snowboarder. And we've got a fantastic lineup this year, packed full of really interesting people from Local ski tourers to some of these big Red Bull um, guys like Paddy Graham and his crew, Marcus Ada from the North Face, um, Evelina Nilsson. You know, there's just a raft of big names coming, but lots, lots of diverse content Um some, some really fascinating stuff going on.
1: Yeah. And I guess your job here tonight at this event is um, to showcase new and old films from the festival. Yeah. So what are you showing that isn't new?
2: Oh, I've got to show my favourite film, um, which is Rock in Cuba. Um, it's from the Old Petzl Rock Trip series by Baraka Films. Um, I just, oh, just a piece of genius, really, where they're fused uh, Cuban salsa-style music to um, to a climbing film. You know, the most unlikely combination, but just that end result is, is for me, a, a brilliant piece of work. And you can't stop sort of swaying and dancing whilst you're watching a climbing film pretty unusual to a couple of new shorts um which are which are gems from a base jumping short called the flip um to a guy who's a trail runner um and he's also an artist so he's sketching some of his runs in in the alps on this one minute film so you know from one end of the spectrum to another and obviously the the swimmers in the Faroe islands as well so it's it's a good mix
1: yeah I I can't be there this year, which is a shame. It's I know, you've a,
2: got you've got a big adventure coming up. Well, right? yeah,
1: more about, well, yeah. I know, that's playing on my mind a lot at the minute.
2: But aren't uh, we going to link in with you at the festival? I think that's the plan, isn't it? That's the plan, if yeah. we get the 3G, which we yeah. hope we will.
1: Yeah, the plan is Leo's going to call in and Anna's going to call into the Women in Adventure Night. So Brilliant, brilliant. Try and facilitate that from the side yeah. of the mountain.
2: Well, I wish you all the best for that. Um, Thanks. It's going to be hot, though,
1: isn't it? Really, gonna, yeah. The yeah. Operating, we're sat with these posh microphones but 90 percent humidity might not yeah we'll see what happens um cool so i guess well the way we normally end these is um asking people about hopes dreams and fears but i'm going to twist it on its head i'm going to ask you what you think the future holds for adventure film wow
2: that's a really big one in fact i was asked to speak at the um, outdoor conference in interlaken last month about that what does the future of venture film hold um, European outdoor summit and uh, I had a long hard think about that and seeing seeing how things have sort of transitioned over the last even five years let, let alone ten years and i think I think we 're going to get hopefully more documentary style content um, rather than what I call literal storytelling so maybe um, again the creativity will I think seep in I think the days of um, repetitive, observational content will, I think there'll always be a place for it, but actually the audience are becoming a little bit more discerning and they want more narrative. They want to get under the skin and see some of the failures, um, some more emotion to it. Humor, we don't have a lot of humor. I still think there's a lot of humor to be done uh, with, with, within the genre. Um, and the, the other side is the challenge we've got with um, with brand-driven content because a lot of this these projects, a lot of these films are still funded by the outdoor industry. And, um, it would be nice to see some of our film become a bit more mainstream, um, which will bring in alternative revenue sources, um, for the filmmakers and will will help nurture that industry as well. And hopefully we'll have a a bit of a role to play in that with, with Kendall. Nice.
1: Cool. And then my last question for you, um, I definitely have an ulterior motive because obviously I'm going to pinch them if you give me good answers, is um, you've interviewed a lot of people, you've Mm. met a lot of speakers at Kendall. Who are the one or two people that you've never spoken to that you'd love to sit down and talk to for an hour?
2: Oh, God, that's a really tough question. I have interviewed a lot of people. Um, From the old guard, um, Schuinard. I'd love to have have a chat with Schuinard, just what he's done and what he's still trying to do with his company um i really don't like naming people because i think i think everybody's got a story and adventure and it's often the people you'd probably not have heard of that that make the most impact i, I, I was watching in a way, I'd like to pull in non outdoor filmmakers and bring them into our world i watched I've done if you've seen that documentary um for sama about the syrian um woman who who was raising a child in Aleppo no it's the most powerful documentary I've ever seen it was it was aired on channel four last week really hard hitting I was like in tears watching it but you know just seeing what these people had gone through in in syria and, uh, and Aleppo it just made me think. What what's the point of all our content when you see such hardship and you know horror going on in front of us but it would be nice to give somebody like that a platform at Kendall just to see what they make of our content and um, how they would approach making a film maybe not to that extreme but it just is such a, a leveller if you like I think
1: oh, go on. I'm going to put you on the spot I'm really sorry what is the point what is the point of all of this outdoor film and all these outdoor pursuits? Um,
2: I think everyone needs release, and I think everyone needs to share to share their passions. We're seeing that with social media, but but if you can do it through a creative medium, I think a lot can be learned from that, and actually a lot of influence can be gained from it. So. As trite and trivial as a lot of the content may seem actually its it probably has a lot of impact on a lot of people, and we don't realize that you know and you're seeing that within the content we've got al Lee's new film about a blind climber um we've got people overcoming disabilities mental um you know mental health issues um you know that we're seeing that more and more in sort of in the in the vocabulary of the content that we've we're we're platforming at Kendall so I think the point is that it's part of life, you know, it's part of part of people's makeup is to actually engage with wild nature and understand the environment and we haven't even touched on the environmental crisis that that we've got out there at the moment and um you know we also give that a platform and that will inevitably grow at Kendall. And um, we've got a huge thread of environmental content this year but um I think it's just giving giving people the The platform to communicate with lots of um lots of different
1: audiences, yeah, and actually, I forgot to mention it's not a tough question <laughs> um obviously not everybody can get to Kendall um you have the tour as well. can mm. you talk a little bit about the tour
2: yeah we 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 take some of the best stories, best films um speakers on tour with us, different speakers and uh, different different towns and cities um and next year's our fortieth anniversary so it's uh twenty twenty is a big year for Kendall. So we've got forty forty tour dates around the UK and Ireland. So um, plus we're doing more and more stuff overseas as well, um, and that that's great because we're taking it to predominantly new audiences. And we, I usually ask the question if I'm presenting one of the shows, is who's been to Kendall? It's still quite a small group of people in each audience, so it shows you that we are taking the message out there and and sowing the seeds of adventure. Really, it's the spirit of adventure and the values that we share. I think is, is really positive. So,
1: brilliant. Yeah. That's ace. Cool. I guess we'll leave it there and go for a beer. Yeah, thanks, mate. Cool. Thanks very much. Thank you. Nice one. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And a big thanks to Steve for sitting down with me and to Columbia and the Carnaby Street Store for making it happen. For more information on the podcast, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk.